0: Today we're going to go back to the Gospel of John. Now, we have just a couple of weeks left in John, and then I'm going to take some time off of John. And maybe that's a relief to you, I don't know. Um, But I'm preparing uh, some messages for Advent uh, around the Christmas theme. And then in January, um, I'm actually going to start a different sermon series uh, talking about this idea of what is the church um, as we get into the new year. So we'll do that for a little bit on Sunday mornings, And then after that, we'll go back to John, okay? So we will finish John, but um, the next couple of weeks um, will be the last messages in the book of John for a few months um, as we today wrap up chapter 13, and next week uh, we'll get just barely into chapter 14 before we take some time away. Today, we're in John chapter 13, looking at verses 31 through 38, and we're looking at this idea of love one another. I invite you to follow along. As I read the text this morning, when he, that's Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Father, we pray now that in the next little bit as we look into your word, that you would use it in our hearts today. That you would fill us with a vision of who you are from the scriptures. You would point us to the cross today. Help us to see it is central to how we live our lives in you. Lord, without the cross, there is no hope for salvation. Without the cross, we cannot live out the love that you have called us to show towards others. And we ask that today, you would convict us of sin. You would point us to Jesus. You would draw us into a deeper relationship with you that we may live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Lord, I pray for one who hears these things, who has never turned to Jesus Christ, has never placed faith and trust in him. Today, you would show them once again what Jesus has done for us, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, for Christians today, help us to be challenged with the love that you have called us to show one another and help us to seek to live out that love, be ready to repent of our sin and live For the glory of the kingdom, your name we pray, amen. Things will just never be the same. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Maybe you've said that phrase before. These words of deepest distress and hurt are often heard when someone experiences the loss of a loved one endures some other traumatic, life-altering event. And they they express these things. Why? Because the shock, the anxiety, the fear, and the loss all seem to close close in on them at one time. It leaves you scrambling for what to feel or to do or to expect. And so the only thing you seem to know is that nothing is going to be the same as it has been. Here in John chapter 13, as we come to the end of the chapter, we see the lives of the disciples are about to change in a dramatic fashion. As the time of Jesus' death draws near, they are facing the reality that their lives will never be the same. The three years that they've walked with Jesus will come to a very sudden end, spurned on by a horrible act of betrayal committed by one of their own. However, in Jesus' coming death on the cross, there is a deeper And greater truth, because of Jesus' sacrifice, things will never be the same. That's a great truth. Because of his act of love and grace, the hope of heaven and the security of salvation will be open for all mankind. God's glory shines forth through Jesus, and in that work, Jesus calls on his disciples to live in a way that reflects him to others. So, what you see in this passage here today is because of Jesus' love poured out on the cross, disciples are called and empowered to live out that love. The cross of Jesus Christ is central to our faith, it is central to the lives of disciples. And because Jesus went to the cross, because the glory of God was seen in his act of salvation and redemption, we're called to that same same love. The command that Jesus makes here later in this passage that we'll look at is based in and finds its hope and strength in the love that he showed us. And that central place is, of course, on the cross, And so, as we open this passage here today, we're going to see three different aspects of that love and how it's played out here in this text. In the first three verses, verses 31 through 33, we see the glorious love of God that is displayed. We see that in Jesus' glory. In verse 31, you read, when he, now again, that he there is is talking about Judas, who in the last passage, Jesus has been talking about the one who betrayed him, and Judas departs. When he has, has gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. So Judas has, has left and, and Jesus has commanded him, as you remember from last time, he, he said, what you're going to do, do quickly, or, or more literal, the literal translation is do it more quickly. The events that are leading to Jesus' death are firmly set in motion. His time is at hand. His hour has come. This is the mission Jesus was sent to fulfill. He did not come the first time as the conquering king, but as the perfect lamb of God. And so everything Jesus did accomplished the purpose of that mission. It was a mission that was given to him by God the Father. And as Paul would later testify in the New Testament, it is a mission that perfectly fit God's timing and his ways. He wrote in Galatians chapter four, verses four through five, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus lived a perfect life fulfilling the law of God for us. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law or even to set it aside. He came to meet all of the law's requirements and to fulfill them in himself. And as a man, Jesus could do that on behalf of you and me, human beings. As God, Jesus could do this act for all mankind, offering salvation to all who trust in his finished work. And so there's a signal word here. In John chapter 13, verse 31, that shows us that this ultimate glorification of Jesus at the cross is now at hand. Do you catch that? When he had gone out, when Judas has departed, Jesus said what? Now is the Son of Man glorified. That glorification of Jesus is coming. And it is coming in what is coming in the hours ahead. That is his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. Now, remember, there is some confusion over why Jesus came, even amongst his disciples, even though he had had told them that he would die and that he would rise again. There were many who still believed he would overthrow the Romans and establish his kingdom then and there. Therefore, his death, especially on the cross, would seem to be antithetical to God's purpose and glory in their lives. But Jesus assures his disciples here that the father has been glorified by his works so thus Jesus the son of man is glorified he continues in verse 32 if god is glorified in him god will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once god the father has given honor and glory to god the son for this work that Jesus has come to perform and so Jesus shows here the inexorable connection between the father And the Son. If God is glorified in Jesus, and He is, then Jesus is glorified in the Father. And the glory of God is imminent in the ministry of Jesus. Why? Because He is approaching that work on the cross that He was sent to perform. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus displays the glory of God. And what do we call the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? We commonly call that the gospel. It displays for us God's glory. How does it display God's glory? Well, it displays His holiness as God pours out His holy wrath on sin, it displays His compassion poured out on both the temporal and eternal needs of man. It displays God's mercy as Jesus takes on the punishment we so justly deserve. It displays God's grace, giving us the standing with God that Jesus deserves and is due. It displays God's justice, paying the price of sin. It displays his omniscient power over sin, brokenness, darkness, and death itself. It displays God's sovereignty, bringing about his great plan of salvation using the sinful choices of man in this plan. And it displays God's love as Jesus became the substitute for sin. The Father and the Son are glorified in each other as is right and good. And Jesus on the cross lifts up God in his glory for us to see. The glory of God is that which exalts him and causes us to worship him. You know, we talk a lot about, we, we read that in the scripture, the glory of God, the glory of God. And, and it has different manifestations, of course, we, in, in the New Testament and the Old Testament especially, talks about the glory of God. But ultimately, what is the glory of God? The glory of God is that which exalts him and causes us to worship him. Jesus, then, is the highest revelation of God's glory. And the cross is the pivotal point in the glorification of Jesus. And again, some miss that concept because they think, well, he's coming to to overthrow the Romans and rule, so he'll be glorified when he sits on the throne. But God tells us, and Jesus tells us, that the glory comes, what? When he hangs on the cross to redeem us. On the cross, we see displayed exactly who God is. And so the cross is the center of a Christian's life. You know, the cross isn't a trinket. It isn't something you hang on the wall. It isn't a nice concept. The cross is vital to your faith. Very simply, do you want to live for the glory of God? Face the cross. Do you want to squelch the sinful, troubling thoughts that, that rise within and tempt you to do wrong? Face the cross. Focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you want to see God for who he is and live in light of this fresh glimpse? Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Without the cross, we have no hope. Without the cross, we have no life. So we look to the cross for salvation and sanctification. And in our lives as Christians, there are times when we are are fighting and battling against sin. I don't know if you have that experience. I hope you do as a Christian because if you don't, you might have other questions to ask yourself. But as a Christian, as you are battling against sin, we sometimes think that our mission and our goal is just to stamp out bad things every time we see them. Well, that's a bad thing. We're not going to do that. That's a bad thing. We're not going to do that. That's a bad thing. And it becomes behavior modification. The Christian life is not about not doing bad things. The Christian life is about living for the glory of God and focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ. The only way you're going to have victory over sin, real, sustained victory in your life, is to spend time with God, focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ, is to live out the gospel. And if you spend your life just going, well, I don't want to do bad things, then you don't understand the calling of a disciple. In fact, Jesus is just going to talk in just a few minutes here about what is the command of a disciple. How is a disciple to live? He is to live in the love of Jesus Christ. And what does that take? That takes living in light of the cross. And so with Jesus' death and resurrection on the horizon, Jesus is warning his disciples once again of his own departure. In verse 33, we read about Jesus' departure. He says, little children, Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus cares deeply for his disciples. And this is communicated by the wording that he uses here. When you read that in verse 33, you read that first phrase, little children. This is not Jesus demeaning those disciples, but he's showing them that they are endeared and that he loves them. Like a father Warning his children of something on the horizon when he doesn't want to surprise them. Jesus warns his disciples of what is to come. Soon, Jesus will face the cross. And after he faces the cross and rises again, he will be with them briefly, but then he will return to the Father. And when he accomplishes this work, when he fulfills the mission, he will depart from them. And so what is he saying? Number one, they can't go with him to the cross. That's Jesus' work and his alone. Number two, on the day of his ascension, when he returns to the Father, we read about in the first part, in the first chapter of Acts, they can't go with him to heaven. Furthermore... Because of Jesus' departure for his trial and his coming, in the coming hours, the daily interactions the disciples have enjoyed with him in the flesh are about to end. So their whole relationship with Jesus is about to change. That statement we said at the beginning, things will never be the same. They will be entrusted with another mission, which we will soon see. But now Jesus is, is saying, you, you need to be ready because I'm about to depart and you can't go with me. Now, Jesus says here, and we remember back in, in the, in, earlier in John, Jesus had spoken of this departure before to the Jewish leadership. That's what he means here when he says, as I said to the Jews. And those people that he spoke to were confused by what he said as well because they assumed when he said this on two different occasions that either he would go to the dispersion preaching to the Jews amongst the Gentiles, or even to the Gentiles themselves, or the second time they assumed that he would perhaps commit suicide, guaranteeing in their minds that he would spend eternity separated from God, while they instead earning God's favor through their self-righteous behavior would be in the presence of God. In those passages, Jesus was, when he made that statement, it was a totally different setting and a totally different um, um, motivation. And the, the motivation there was to confront their self-righteous attitudes and their views they had about themselves. He was seeking to convict them of their sin, looking to show them that, hey, you need to trust in me. And if you don't trust in me, you won't be in the presence of God. His words there were a dire warning of the consequences of unbelief. But here in John chapter 13, these are not words of warning of, 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 hey, you know, don't, if you don't believe in me, you won't be with me. Instead, they are a temporary status for the disciples of Jesus on this earth. Because though they will be separated for a time, their faith in Jesus guarantees them a place in heaven with him one day. Jesus will talk about that in the next passage that we look at next week. But just understand that what Jesus is saying here Things are going to change and they cannot come. You'll see what he says here in a Peter. Eventually they will come to be with him. But he's warning them. Hey, here's what's, here's what's going on. Now their faith is going to place them in the kingdom of God. And where is that kingdom found? It's found in the hearts and lives of all those who trust in Jesus Christ. That is the kingdom of God. At this time, there's not a physical kingdom, right? But there will be one day. But we, if we know Christ, are part of that kingdom. And though we may live on this earth, this isn't our home. Thank goodness for that, right? And though they could not yet be with Jesus in eternity, he would call them to live for the kingdom of God on this earth. Though they would not be physically with Jesus, they would still be called to live out the glory of the kingdom of God. And so it is imperative That they continue to live in this way that honors him. So therefore, in light of his coming glorification, in light of the cross, here is the command. We see this, this is really the, the focus of this passage here today, is this defining love that Jesus talks about. And in verse 34, he gives this command. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So this is the heart of the passage that Jesus is calling his disciples to here, this obedience. He's commanding them on how they are to live for his glory, how they are to live out his kingdom. And this begins with this primary commandment, that they are to what? Love one another. Now, stop right there. In that regard, is love one another, is that commandment new? Well, no, right? We've read that in the Old Testament. In the law of God, God called his people to love one another. And he, It begins with a love for God that flows into loving each other. I mean, Jesus himself spoke of this. We read in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, With all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Everything you read in the Old Testament, Jesus says, hangs on these two things. Love God supremely, love others selflessly. Everything else flows out of that. So if loving others isn't the new commandment, What is the new commandment? Well, Jesus changes the wording, does he not? If you've looked at the passage, you probably already picked up on that. Jesus says that they are to love one another, what? Just as I have loved you. So the old commandment, the, the, the old testament was love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is the supreme example, their savior and leader in these things. As man, Jesus demonstrated for them how they were to carry this out. He just served them at the Last Supper. We looked at it in the very first passage in John chapter 13. He, he physically demonstrated one way they could love one another. So as man, he demonstrated this for them. As God, Jesus would empower them through the work of the Holy Spirit to love this way. Now, the disciples are called to live in an expression of godly love. They are the way in which Jesus loves disciples, and that, that begins here but continues on through the ages of disciples. Disciples are called to love one another in the same way. What is that love? Well, the word, of course, is agape, a selfless Love that chooses to love its object, that sacrifices for the benefit of the one receiving the love. This is the type of love Jesus showed time and again in his ministry. He set aside his position in heaven briefly, coming to earth in human form. He subjected himself to all the feelings and experiences of mankind. He willingly went to the cross, feeling the weight and sting of betrayal and the agony of death. That is amazing. Sacrificial, selfless love. That is the love that Jesus now says if you are a disciple, this is the kind of love you're to have for one another. And by the way, this completely and finally debunks all of the learn to love yourself arguments that even Christians will argue today. Right? Sometimes people tell you that. Well, you just need to learn to love yourself a little more. And I've told you before that the Hebrew word for that is baloney, right? That, that God said in the Old Testament, and, and Jesus repeated it, and it's, it's not passed away that you're to love your neighbor as yourself, assuming we already love ourselves, and then Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. We are to reflect the love of God to other people. This means that your love for others is not dependent on how you feel about that person because sometimes you don't feel very loving, right? At the risk of entering, uh, bringing in something too secular, but there's an old song that was written, you know, something about lost that love and feeling, right? I don't know that song, so if I misquoted it, there you go, okay? Because sometimes we don't feel like loving other people, right? But Jesus says, this is a love that chooses to love others. You know what? That love isn't dependent on whether or not that person loves you back. That love isn't dependent on whether or not that person even deserves your love. Because look at the love of Jesus Christ and ask yourself this question this morning. How many of us sitting in this room deserve the type of love Jesus showed toward us? And the answer is a big, fat zero, right? Your love for others isn't dependent on other people. You know what it's dependent on? It's dependent on how Jesus loved you. This love is first applied by disciples towards other disciples, right? Jesus says, he says, first of all, he says here, love one another. Who's he talking about? He's talking about those 11 guys in that room. Why is that such a big deal? Well, if you remember back a few weeks ago, I shared with you that the disciples have been vying with one another for who's going to have the greatest position in the kingdom, right? And there wasn't a whole lot of love when that was going around, right? I mean, you think back to Mark chapter 10 when James and John get their mom involved and she says, you know, will you give my my sons the position of honor? There's not a whole lot of love except self-love. So Jesus is saying, listen, he has served them in love. He's illustrated this by washing their feet. He's calling them now to show the same types of, this type of love towards one another. A Christian's greatest expression of love on this earth should be towards other Christians. That's a fact. That the greatest, that, that fellow brothers and sisters in Christ should feel that expression of love from, from other Christians. We are a family bound together by the love and finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, naturally, that love should spiral out from there into others. Jesus didn't show this love to just people who were his disciples, right? There's not the frozen chosen, right? That if, hey, us four, no more, this is who we love. That love should come out from disciples into a lost and dying world both individually and corporately. We should show the same type of love of Jesus to everyone encounter. So the question is, what does that love look like? Well, we could preach a whole message on that. and I'm not going to. I'm already in the middle of one, so I'm not going to start another one, okay? But take that passage we read this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That is an excellent passage to break apart and to study and to meditate on. What does that love look like? It is a love that gives of itself to help others. It is a love that assumes the best about other people. It is a love that gives everything it has for the betterment of other people. At the same time, it is a love that is willing to do hard things. Now, if we're honest, the love that Jesus has called us to is often misconstrued by those who want to excuse their sin, is it not? I Have you ever heard a phrase like this? Well, I thought Christians were loving, right? When maybe you stood up against something that was wrong. We live in a world when we're fed this message. Hey, love is love, right? And so you can't tell me because Jesus says to love and you're not being very loving. Well, what does Jesus mean here? Does Jesus' love for others preclude him from speaking out against sin? absolutely not read the gospel of john right how many times did jesus speak out against the self-righteous pride uh, pride and arrogance of the of the religious leadership of israel in fact that love drove jesus to share the message of himself and his calling out of sin so what did jesus do he spoke the truth in love He called out the sin of his day. He pointed out self-righteousness and other sins, calling for people to find life in him, the son of God. And you know what? Today, you and I are called to do the same. There There are going to be times in your life that love for a fellow Christian is going to require you to confront that Christian's sin in love. Now, there's a right way to do this and there's a wrong way to do this what's the right way? We look at the word of God, right? And again, that's another message for another time. There will be times in our lives where in the love of God, we need to stand up against the sin of the world that we live in. Say, hey, this is right. This is wrong and this is right. Why? Because this is what God says. But we can do that in love, by the way. The love of Christ is necessary for anything that a Christian does. Without it, what is the point and the reason for why we do what we do? Without the love of Christ that took him to the cross, we can go through all the right motions, but without that love, what's the point? I mean, this continuous action command must be front and center. Jesus says here, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. It's an ongoing action that you be loving one another. I love the way one pastor put it, he said it this way, orthodoxy without principal obedience to this characteristic command of the new covenant is merely so much humbug. I just, I like that quote because he used the word humbug, right? What is he saying in that? What is he saying in that? He's saying, listen, you can go through all the right actions you want, but if you don't adhere to this, love one another as I have loved you, it's worthless. It's worthless. That's, by the way, exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Jesus says, if his disciples will do this, it will be unmistakable who they belong to. It's a defining love of his disciples. There's the command. In verse 35, this is the testimony of that love. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, the hallmark of a disciple is the Christ like love they show to each other. Because the world cannot conjure up this type of love. Humanity, in its natural state, loves other people how? One, if, if love is initiated, right? Well, they love me, so I love them. If love is reciprocated, they, they show love back to me, so I'm going to keep loving them. Or if it ultimately serves my self-interest, hey, if I show love to this person, I get what I want. That's how the world loves A love that chooses to love its recipient no matter what is something supernatural. And indeed, it's a work of God in the heart of a believer. Sadly, there are many local churches that have a bad rap when it comes to this idea of love. Countless stories of church splits, disenfranchisement with the church by individuals, pastors being ousted by power-hungry boards, and more fill the internet these days. And so many who sit in church pews still suffer the ramifications of previous bad experiences they had in local churches. And this has led people to say things like, well, you know, churches are just full of hypocrites. It has led others to shun church or to only commit to church half-heartedly in disobedience to God. And I'm going to tell you something this morning. If you sit here today and you have had a horrible, bad experience in a local church that bills itself as a Bible-believing, God-honoring church, I want to say something to you today. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you had that experience. I'm sorry that professing Christians, proclaimed disciples of Jesus, acted in this way towards you. Because I'm here to tell you, it is not how God has called us to act. As we have said, Christians are still in the process of sanctification on this side of eternity. There is no instant perfection. But that does not excuse the way in which you were treated, the experiences you went through, or the hurt you may still feel. So the question is then, what do we do when Christians fail to show love? Because if we're honest, we've probably all experienced that in our lives. Whether it's the person you're married to or the church you went to we've all experienced in our lives at some point someone who failed to show the love of Christ. What do we do with the hurt? The hypocrisy we've observed. Quite frankly, the sin we've experienced. Well, if you're a Christian, you know what you treat it with? You treat it with the love of Christ. Sometimes that means we have to confront that in love the way God tells us in his word. Other times, we might have to walk away from that situation or whatever it is, leaving that in the hands of God, but saying, look, God loves them and I do. I'm going to seek to love them as well, but God's going to have to deal with us. And we must also recognize something about ourselves, that we too are imperfect and hypocritical. Many are the claims, right, that churches are full of hypocrites and that's not the way it's supposed to be done, and we set ourselves up as the judges of everybody else. We need God's grace to work in us and continue to sanctify us. I mean, could it be possible that we are not as right on certain things as we think we are? In times when we have been genuinely wronged, we must understand in those moments the greatness and sovereignty of God in all things. So therefore, I would challenge you, do not let the sins of other people Lead you into making choices of continued disobedience. A human being is going to let you down, perhaps in a way that seems irreparable. So what do you do? You give it to God, and you make the next right choice in the love of God. Do not give away in your heart to bitterness, causing you to reject things like gathering in worship with believers, joining a local church, faithfully walking the Lord in personal devotions, leading your family in biblical service to the Lord, and more. Just because you are on the receiving end of someone else's sinful choice does not give you license to make sinful choices. But unfortunately, There are are people who have been in churches across this this country and world and some of them sit in local churches today that they continue to make sinful choices. Why? Because I was wronged and so now I'm just going to carry this with me. You have to give it to the love of God. And you have to go, God, I, I can't control that situation. We have to forgive and we have to make the next right choice to live in his love. Jesus certainly was on the receiving end of many sinful choices of man, was he not? Yet he continued to show mankind selfless, sacrificial love. And with God's empowering help, you and I can do the same. Disciples loving one another with the love of Jesus is an incredible testimony for the Lord. No, perfection isn't expected, but consistent growth in the love of Jesus should be the norm for disciples. And it is possible in the power of God. So this command that Jesus says here, love one another as I have loved you. This is the all-consuming command and passion for a disciple. That we are to love one another as Jesus loved us. And how do you do that? Well, you can't do that on your own, which we're going to prove that in just a second. Okay, so I'm trying not to get ahead of myself. But we have to have a vibrant, active relationship with God. You have to read the word of God. You have to meditate on the word of God. You have to know what God says and, and spend time with God in order to live for God. Because I don't know if you know this, but the Christian life is war. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God so that you can walk to the park and have a good time. No! No! Because you're in a battle for your life. Because if Satan can't have your soul, he will make you as useless to God as he possibly can. So live in the grace and the strength of God. And if we do that, we can carry out what Jesus says. But there is one disciple who is there that night who thinks that he has what it takes to do what God Jesus has called him to do, even though Jesus says otherwise. So we see in verses 36 to 38 This overestimated love. And if you have your bulletin, this is not the point that's on your bulletin. Last night, my wife looked at my PowerPoint, and she said, you know, I think this would be a better way to say it. So there you go. If you want to say my wife writes my sermons, there you go, I guess, okay? Overestimated love. In verses 36 and 37, look at the bold claim. Here's Here's our favorite disciple, right? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter, ever the outspoken leader, wants to know, again, where is Jesus going? He wants him to elaborate on the statement. Why? Well, think about this. The disciples for the last three years have been everywhere with Jesus. So why are things changing now? What's going to be different Peter speaks out, giving voice to the unwillingness of the disciples to accept Jesus' departure. Now, you know, we give Peter a a lot of rap here, right? Because he said something. But, But I tend to think that all of these guys are thinking this, right? Peter's just the one who's willing to say something. Literally, Jesus tells Peter here what? That he cannot follow him now. That word is very interesting, okay, in the Greek. It literally talks about you do not have the power to follow me now. Peter may think he can, but he cannot do this. He cannot live out this type of love without the help of Jesus Christ. Jesus reassures Peter here. I mean, this is look what he says here. He says, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you what? will follow afterward now this is a promise of eternity this is a promise of of of, listen just because you're not going with me now doesn't mean you'll never be with me again there's hope here remember jesus told the religious leaders that they would not come to be with him ever because they did not have faith in him Jesus, knowing Peter's heart, assuring Peter, hey, your faith is not misplaced, it is not in vain, it's not false, you will be there one day. But Peter isn't satisfied with this. He wishes here to declare his love for the Lord, and now, look, Peter's acting like it's all about him. He's he's saying, look, I'm worthy to follow Jesus wherever he's going, because I'm going to lay down my life for the Lord, he says... I will lay down my life for you. Now, that's a very bold and brash statement, right? And it's not out of character for Peter. He never shied away from speaking his mind whether he was right or wrong. And in fact, the other gospel writers also record this from different perspectives. We read in Matthew 26, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Mark wrote it this way, and he said, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Luke 22, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So Peter says, I can do it. I can live out this love that you want me to live. I can live it out for you. And here, Jesus in love will expose Peter's need for continued faith and trust in him that Jesus will continue to grow in him. We see the reality that's declared in verse 38. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. What does Jesus say here? Jesus tells Peter very plainly, Peter, you won't even be able to live for me, let alone die for me. The rooster will not crow. The morning will not come until Peter has denied Jesus three times. And that is far from being asked to die for Jesus. This is simply being willing to identify himself with Jesus who is on trial, his master and Lord. But Peter won't even be able to do this, Jesus says. Now, Peter believes in Jesus, but he still has much to learn and much growth to undertake. This is the life of a disciple. And if you know the Lord, perhaps you've had a similar experience. You felt on top of the world, like no one could stop you from living for God, that you were a Christian without equal. And pride has a way of sneaking up in our lives and taking us down, doesn't it? And we are ever so humbled after we think things like this. Because it isn't someone else who causes us to sin, it is our own selves. When we fail to submit ourselves to the Lord, living in his strength and for his glory, we walk in disobedience to God. Now, in his love, God convicts us of our sin, and though it isn't a great feeling, we can and we should be thankful for the conviction of sin that God brings into our lives. In his love, God does this. Jesus predicted this of Peter, knowing also then how he would use Peter in his great and glorious plan of spreading the message of God's salvation. Peter was still God's work in progress as are all disciples. So let us live for the glory of the Lord, living out his great command to his disciples because God continues to refine our love as we grow in him. Because of Jesus' love poured out on the cross, disciples are called and empowered to live out that love. The principal mission of Jesus was to bring glory to the Father by accomplishing the work of salvation. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has finished the work of reconciliation between you and God. Though in sin you are an enemy of God, Jesus has made a way for you to be right with God. The holiness and the justice of God are satisfied in Jesus' loving and gracious work. And this finished work of Jesus can be yours today through faith. In him. I'm here to tell you today, the work is finished. Jesus has ascended to the Father, but the work of the kingdom of God still continues today. The kingdom of God is manifested in the hearts of believers and is seen in the local church. The hallmark of disciples is loving one another with the love of Jesus. And if we're honest, that is a very tall order. That is a love we cannot just will ourselves to have, and conjure up from within. There are no steps that you can follow in your life to have more love. The only way to cultivate this love is an active, submissive relationship to God. That's where it comes from. God has placed in your life myriads of people that need to experience the love of Jesus, you are a reflector as a disciple of this type of love. You are called to action to show this love to them. From the momentary passes with those you encounter while you're out and about, to the long-term relationships you have in your home, with your family, your church, or others, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you are called to intentionally show his love with his help to everyone. Jesus' love for us is that which is unfathomable, Beyond degree, and calls for our response to Him. So we respond initially in faith, finding life in Jesus, the Son of God. We respond as disciples daily, living out that love towards others for His ultimate and incredible glory. Father, thank you for the word that you have given us today. You have preserved it for us to read. You our Holy Spirit has been given to illuminate to us. And Lord, today we ask that it would have its way in our hearts and lives, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would show us how you want us to obey, and that you would empower us to obey the word of God today. Lord, in and of ourselves, we are incapable of living out this love, this command of love that you have called us to. But in Jesus Christ, we can. And Lord, we ask that you would... Help us as individuals, help Beaverton Baptist Church as a corporate body to live out this command to love one another as you have loved us, to love our community as you have loved us, to love our families, our relatives, our neighbors, our our coworkers, our teammates, our siblings, our spouses as you have loved us. And Lord, I pray today for one who may have been hurt by another Christian who struggles with those things, who lives even in disobedience and sin because of what they have experienced. Lord, help them to see the love of God poured out in their lives and the grace they have to live for you despite what they've experienced. Lord, point us to the cross and show us who you are, what you've done, and how we can live for you today. I pray that you would continue to do your work in our hearts as we leave this place today. We ask that you would get the honor and glory for the rest of said and done here. Bring us back tonight to hear your word again. In your name we pray, amen.